Hello, everyone. My name is John McDonough from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Welcome to Health or Consequences, the health policy podcast from Commonwealth Magazine and Mass Inc. We do this every month. And my, my co-host is Dr. Paul Haddis, formerly of the Tufts University School of Medicine. Uh, welcome, Paul. Great to be with you again. Thank you, John. And uh, we started this podcast at the end of 2018. And our very first guest was Mary Lou Sutters, Secretary of Health and Human Services for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And we are thrilled and delighted to welcome her back here with us today as our very first guest who's here for the second time. So congratulations on that. Welcome Secretary Sutters and thank you very much for joining us. We know you are one of the busiest people in the state of Massachusetts and we appreciate very much your spending this time with us to talk. Um, it's my pleasure to be with you. Um, apparently no one else is willing to come back a second time. Is that what you're saying to me, gentlemen? <laughs> no, it took us a long time to get over that threshold that we would let someone back. Oh, and we just okay. broke down all the barriers for you. <laughs> it took a COVID pandemic to say the least. Uh, we, we were so incredibly um, pleased to have you here. And I want to offer my, my welcome and thank you. As always in this pandemic, it seems like you and the governor are often making news. So let's start with today's news, where we learned that the governor's uh, adding some additional state requirements to try to reduce the density of human interactions, both inside and outside. And you spoke a bit today about the need for hospitals starting the day after Christmas to end uh, elective inpatient surgery unless uh, patients might be harmed if, if they delay. So perhaps you can uh, tell us a little bit about those developments and really what's on your mind uh, as a result of the, of the things that you and the governor are doing now. Yeah. Well, thank you. And again, um, truly thank you for having me. Uh, it's, um, it's hard to imagine we've been in this pandemic for you know, really almost a year now. Um, certainly March is when we sort of formally stood up the command center. But one of the things that we, you, you know, this pandemic evolves and what we experienced in the springtime is very different from what we're experiencing now. Um, we have to protect our healthcare system in the sense of being, uh, having the ability to meet whatever comes to us. Uh, the, great, the great news about being in Massachusetts, and I know you, Paul, you and John know this, is it is a strong healthcare system. We, we can have the debates about cost. And of course we can always do better when it comes to availability and equity issues, but we start from a strong base and, but we need to protect that base. We need to make sure that we never have to implement crisis standards of care, or we have people who come to an emergency department that you just can't manage and take care of. So unfortunately, one of the things we've seen since Thanksgiving is we saw a, a doubling of admissions and positive COVID cases. Uh, and that really worried us. And despite all of our messaging and pleas and, uh, uh, you know, increasing things like the mask order and uh, uh, nighttime advisories, you know, we, everything closes at 9.30.10. We continued after Thanksgiving, we saw this rapid increase. 
And as we come into a very major holiday time, we felt that we needed to take additional measures to reduce the transmission, to keep our healthcare systems able to respond to whatever acute care needs come to us, and to send a strong message to all of us that we know we're tired, we're weary of COVID, we have hope of vaccines, but we need to bridge to, to get through the holidays. And today's measures, you know, the CDC, we know that reducing capacity is a good tool and basically across the board, uh, there's very few things. And we went from 40% capacity to 25% capacity, pretty much across the board, very few things are exempted to try to not see the doubling of admissions in our hospital systems through uh, the holidays. We had curtailed elective procedures, inpatient, inpatient elective procedures, and felt that we needed to take that next step. Of course, clinical decision is what needs to really um, uh, prevail. Uh, and, we, and this is not like the spring where we closed you know, healthcare essentially, except for COVID. You know, outpatient is open, ambulatory is available. We want people to get those very important preventive services, but we need to make sure we have the inpatient capacity to meet whatever the demand is. And honestly, I hope we don't have the demand, but we need to be prepared for it. And there's a new variant that is alarming people around the world from Great Britain. Apparently it's been in Britain since September and has become very widespread. Do you assume that that variant is now present in the United States and in Massachusetts? Do you not know? What's your assessment of that at this point from your expert advisors? So um, we don't know. We don't know. We don't have certainty. Um, but that's one thing of about a pandemic. I think we've all learned is that uh, a pandemic continues to evolve, and you have, and it's it's a global pandemic, John. And I think one of the things we all know from now, right, hindsight being so helpful, uh, is what a lot of people wanted to characterize that the disease, the virus came from China. Yes, the virus came from China, but the virus came from Europe and from the Middle East. And so I, we are, you know, I have people watching uh, uh, with the CDC what's happening in Europe and in Great Britain to advise us. Now, what we have heard is that both Moderna and Pfizer believe that their vaccine uh, is effective to this mutant virus. So that is the good news I've heard. But, you know, we have to be very present, not just what's happening in Massachusetts and in our country, but also what's happening to the pandemic globally. Because if once we're on the other side of this pandemic, I do hope that all of us realize truly how very small the world is and how fast a virus can spread across the world. And how are you assessing at this point the vaccine rollout? Are you satisfied, pleased, concerned, worried? How, what category do you fit in as you look at the rollout over the past couple of weeks and looking ahead with what you know? Well, I'm a worrier, so I always worry. Uh, it's just sort of the, it's just my personality type. 
I, um, I have hope, truly. Uh, for the first time in, since the beginning, I actually have some hope. The, um, the, the initial, uh, the federal government buying uh, Pfizer, all the Pfizer, Moderna, means that we're sort of dependent upon uh, working closely with the federal government on the allocation. We actually tried in Massachusetts to, uh, to get sort of a, a, um, a position in with uh, Pfizer, Moderna, and you know, we were informed that the federal government had basically bought all the vaccine and had first order of refusal. Uh, so that was one. Uh, initially, we were concerned about how the federal government was going to allocate the vaccine to across the country. Uh, initially, we were hearing, you know, compl complicated formulas. And um, our belief, the governor of mine, um, when I met with Project Warp Speed with the Department of Public Health, uh, right around the election, our position was per capita. I mean, across the country, it had to be a, a per capita allocation, nothing more would be fair, right? Um, I mean, I could argue that we were hit hard early and the Northeast should get more of an allocation, uh, but a per capita allocation. And, and the federal government uh, agreed with that. Um, you know, the, the, the announcement about what we could expect in the beginning in the month of December, as you know, the Pfizer allocation, what we first heard. Uh, so the 59,000 that we thought we'd get every week was then reduced. You know, that causes anxiety, um, you know, like what was behind it. I appreciate Dr. Perna, um, Dr. Perna, General Perna, who I think is a straight shooter. I mean, he, you know, he said it was a mistake. I can accept that because this is, um, this is the beginning of a rollout of a vaccine. We're going to be vaccinating, you know, um, we have 6.9 million people. You know, if you think uh, individuals over the age of 14, 16, that's about, um, about 5.86 million people. Uh, you know, we're gonna have our own lumpy bumpy moments uh, in rolling out the vaccine. So uh, this is the beginning. Uh, and I look forward to the day when we have so much supply, it's everywhere. Secretary, your advisory committee, you know, worked very hard with you to come up with a prioritization scheme for vaccination. And while there seems to be universal agreement that the COVID-facing frontline healthcare workers and nursing home residents and staff are the top, in, in recent days, the CDC has put something out suggesting that maybe people over 75 ought to potentially stand in line next, even relative to some of the categories of essential workers. So I don't know if you have any thought about that or any reshaping of our own prioritization in our state. Well, you know, I'm um, one of the best recommendations I think I did make was to um, establish a vaccine advisory board to help the Department of Public Health think through the prioritization, understanding that as we rolled out vaccines, there wouldn't be enough you know, for everyone in this state. And they very much, Paul, used the um, AHIP and the, um, the NASEM's blueprints guidelines, but we made some adjustments in Massachusetts. Uh, two, the two big ones we made, or they recommend, three that they recommended. Uh, one was COVID-facing healthcare and non-COVID-facing healthcare workers, right? So they made this sort of 
distinction. And in doing so, they defined healthcare workers to include dietary environmental services staff and the like if they were COVID facing. That was a bit of an equity lens. And the second uh, modification they made to the federal guidelines was moved uh, home healthcare workers earlier in the prioritization. Uh, that again was a, a, an equity lens because as you know, we have 40,000 personal care attendants. We have a lot of home health aides and they are disproportionately individuals of color. The third thing I, I think uh, the advisory group uh, their priorities, their three main goals. One was obviously preservation of the healthcare system. Second was to reduce the mortality. And the third was equity. And you see equity in the, in the advisory board's uh, recommendations around this sort of 20% allocation to those communities that are disproportionately impacted. Uh, and we will be putting up a dashboard so everyone can see the data. Uh, and so what we've done is we've asked the advisory board uh, to come back and they're meeting tomorrow to look at these um, new recommendations and to advise us as to whether we should make modifications. Uh, we feel very strongly that equity needs to be very much part of our allocation methodology. So I, um, that's why you put together advisors who are a lot smarter than you are and had a very, you know, very different backgrounds as I, I know you know, to advise us. So, uh, and we will make that public. The, um, the just staying with COVID for, uh, for a few more questions. Um, the nursing home sector has really been one of the big epicenters of it in Massachusetts and around the country and very much in Massachusetts. Um, how do you assess the progress that's been made in terms of addressing the threat of the pandemic in the long-term care and nursing home sector? And, uh, and, and how do you feel about where we are right now on that? Um, the nurse, there's no question residents um, that COVID has had a devastating impact on um, uh, residents of nursing homes, their loved ones, their staff. Uh, it's about 65% the spring was about 65% of all of our deaths were related to long-term care. Uh, it hit hard, it hit fast. The asymptomatic spread of the virus, uh, the fact that testing was so limited in those days. Um, um, these are not excuses, it's just sort of, um, you know, February 28th, we had zero capacity to do any testing in Massachusetts. Uh, and as testing started to ramp up the CDC guidelines, um, and honestly, when I'm, you know, looking back, like one of the great regrets or mistakes is that you only tested symptomatic individuals and only residents in nursing homes. Uh, in April, we uh, ramped up testing and we actually deviated from the CDC and uh, tested staff and residents uh, and then had one of those aha moments when we were, we were creating COVID, COVID facilities, COVID nursing homes, uh, and tested all the residents. This is Avinia up in Wilmington, of which they'd had no cases, and went to just do surveillance testing, and half of the residents tested positive. That, that, I, that was truly one of those moments. And when I say aha, 
it was like a shock. Uh, and that really forced us to one, really rethink who got tested, how you cohort uh, and the like. We put in, um, we've spent almost $400 million in rates and accountability. So it was accountability, accountability with money. So financial incentives and accountability. Uh, we put in our own um, surveying because it was clear to us that the CMS surveying was not sufficient on infection control. Uh, we've put in our own measures around hours per patient day. It's never been a standard in Massachusetts. Uh, so we now require uh, above the five-star standard um, hours per patient day. Uh, so through April, through the summer, uh, we tied financial incentives with very specific infection control procedures. And we saw um, infection rates come down significantly in long-term care. Come fall, right, we see because of community transmission, um, even though we do, we have required testing of staff and residents. If there's a positive of either staff or resident, we require at state expense, everyone in the facility is tested. We freeze admissions now to nursing homes and um, admissions don't reopen for 14, day, 14 days after a last positive case. Um, I have 22 rapid response teams uh, that literally go into nursing homes that are having staffing issues, infection control issues, a cluster uh, happens to literally, they, they are enough of a staffing unit to literally staff a floor. Um, and there are eyes and ears and it's a combination of the National Guard, which we reactivated this in November, plus a, um, a contract we've had with a, with a group since the spring. And one of the best decisions I made was when we didn't need them this summer, I kept them on a contingency contract in case we needed to uh, increase their hours again. So we're, um, it's, it's fragile uh, in all honesty. Um, it is one of the things I worry about most is clusters happening in long-term care because it, aside from the devastating impact on residents who are, who are most susceptible, right? Um, older, maybe with comorbid conditions, not as active. Maybe they have DNRs. They may have D, um, you know, DNHs, do not hospitalize. So if a cluster happens, it takes a good 14 days between testing and cohorting and stabilizing to then have no COVID positive cases in that nursing home. And we, we have clusters going on right now in there's about a half a dozen nursing homes on any given day where we have clusters and it's a, um, it's, uh, it's, it's truly one of the things I worry about the most. I spend every day uh, with a team of people. I have a, a command center structure on nursing homes up into the command center um, of all the agencies involved. And I am, they will probably tell you, I'm pretty relentless about it uh, because we need to keep residents safe. We need to provide the supports to their loved one. We close admit, we close visitation when there's a cluster, you know, which is heartbreaking and anxiety arousing for families who now then can't come in and they know there's a positive cases of staff or residents. Working very closely with 11, SEIU 1199. In fact, we just had um, 
what today's Tuesday. I really do know what day it is. It's been like one long day since March. Uh, did a I sponsored with 1199 an open forum about vaccines that we held in English and Spanish last night at eight o'clock around vaccines because we were rolling out vaccine uh, for long-term care. But this is um, this is a constant changing, um, not changing in a bad way, but like oversight. And there's a lot of lessons. We have strong regulations out about the future of long-term care around infection control. Secretary, we do, we do want to move on to, to other topics, but before we leave this one, one that you haven't mentioned, although you just shared how much learning you had, for example, in the nursing home context during this era, but what's this been like for you personally in the role that you've had thus far? And we're still, you know, as, as Joe Biden said today, the darkest days are still ahead. So I'm not, we're not talking about this when it's over. But thus far, what's, what's been it like for you personally to be in the role that you've been doing in, 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 for COVID in our state? Um, it's heartbreaking. It's um, demanding, but I, I sort of knew that. You know, I mean, when you step into the role, it is you become the lightning rod for uh, um, hopes and dreams and frustrations and, you know, why are you not testing enough? Why are you do the every, every, every issue is uh, you are the lightning rod for it. Uh, it's, um, I honestly, I feel every death. I feel every tragedy that's happened um, and work extraordinarily hard with an extraordinary group of people to provide as much data as possible. Uh, you know, always, uh, trying to be as transparent as possible about the decisions we're making and why we're making them. And then you have to, um, you have to be open to the criticism uh, and other ways of thinking about it, uh, which I always try to be, but it's been, um, it's, uh, it's been a long journey. Uh, a lot of, you know, uh, every decision you make and really incomplete information that came to us in the beginning uh, about this virus. But for the first time, Paul, I, I truly have hope. Mm -hmm. And that is from uh, the vaccines that are available. If we can help people um, believe that they're safe, provide the data. I have Paul Bittinger and a number of doctors uh, out just talking straight to people. And um, so far the acceptance rate among healthcare has been quite strong. And we'll see how that continues. Good to hear. So uh, staying on COVID and moving a little bit beyond it, um, you know, you're in charge you of there's Mass something Health. other than COVID? <laughs> well, it's related. You're in charge of Mass Health, uh, oh. the largest health program in Massachusetts. Yeah. And you had this big, bold experiment around uh, accountable care organizations that's been going on for two and a half years now. What's been the impact on Mass Health, and in particular the ACO experiment from the pandemic. Well, I would say that um, the pandemic definitely slowed lots of things in you know government, just because you were focused on the pandemic. Uh, but a couple things about uh, Mass Health and the ACOs. So one is we came out lightning fast on telehealth, Mass Health ACOs across the board. And we converted 
and made the statement that we would pay parity, right? Uh, telehealth, telebehavioral health at the same rates as in-person, which um, was um, a little concerned to some of our friends in the, in the insurance market, but we felt that was very strong. It was in the governor's order. It was in the mass health program. And quite frankly, mass health set the standard for everybody else. And I will, I feel very good about that. And that was mass health pivoting. And we pivoted first in the ACOs, um, but then across the whole mass health book of business. Uh, and telehealth uh, is here to stay in the mass health program. Uh, we just extended, you know, we have, we have to do this through um, CMS approvals and the like. That is one. Secondly, the flex services part of our, so flexible services, which was uh, part of our ACOs. Um, thank goodness, honestly, that we focused on housing and food insecurity were, were the two primary parts of the ACO program. And if ever there was a year to roll out flexible services and a Medicaid program would be the year of a pandemic when food insecurity has been, is an extraordinary consequence or, or heightened as a result of the pandemic and housing insecurity. So the ACOs, um, I don't have a, I don't have the data at the top of my head, but the ACOs pivoted really quickly to roll out the flexible services parts of their, um, of their programs. I actually just spoke to the food and security group at their conference that's put on by community servings. And they were all talking about how uh, no one could have predicted how important that was as part of the ACOs. Um, at the time we were, you know, you didn't write an 1115 waiver based on you're going to have a pandemic. Uh, we have about one point, uh, about 1.2 million people continue to be in the ACOs. I um, believe it or not, we're actually starting to plan for uh, our next waiver. Who knew? Feels like just yesterday I negotiated the last one. Um, uh, continuing the restructuring into a population-based health. The you know lessons learned from the first one like what works, what doesn't work quite as well, but continuing the path of restructuring the mass health program into a population health um, model. Second is um, really uh, working much closer with the correctionals, with the correctional facilities, uh, really like trying to move into uh, correctional facilities much broader, much more intensely, if you would, to work with folks so that you don't have medical recidivism. And so when then when they come out, right, they, they've gotten their services really lined up, started in prison or, or the jails, and then into community. And equity lens is also very important to us. So we think that we think it's the right um, foundation. Uh, and we need to make the adjustments going forward. We've started our, as you know, we love community engagement. So we have started our, um, our process of lots of community groups around structure, community partners, flex services, primary care. Where do, we, where do we pivot? Do we have too many ACOs? So those are all the kinds of things we're going through now. Um, so far, no one has said throw out the model, um, but we, we clearly need to tighten up the behavioral health primary care uh, work and the, and the workforce part. So it's a good work in progress. Yep. To build on, you're talking about the current Medicaid program and where it's going to talk about some other news of the day, which is the House and Senate 
have come out, the Joint uh, Healthcare Finance Committee, with sort of the content of its proposed healthcare bill. Uh, after um, many long months of uh, action, especially on the Senate side, a lot of discussion on the House side. But what are your thoughts about what's in that bill and uh, where it goes from here? So I haven't seen it, um, uh, haven't read it yet, but from what I've heard, uh, so first of all, I'm pleased. Um, I'm pleased that the House and Senate have been able to find the path to um, um, work from our 96 page blueprint. Uh, there's some uh, very good things in it. So telehealth, um, you know, one of, we have been advocating and working with the legislature that telehealth in the Commonwealth really is, is predicated on the governor's executive orders. And other than what I can do in the mass health program, um, once the emergency is, expires, is terminated, uh, so would tel telehealth. So um, the fact that uh, the bill that's coming out of conference uh, has telehealth and has telebehavioral health paid for at parity rates uh, in person, the same as um, uh, a telehealth visit, uh, continues what we had put into place. Has telehealth for, I think, uh, primary and chronic care. I don't, I'm not sure what, I haven't seen what the definitions are yet for two years is good. And then there's another piece that uh, is for 90 days beyond uh, the governor's um, uh, executive orders. So in my mind, it really builds on what we had proposed around telehealth. Scope of practice, Paul. It's, um, people work at the top of their license, right? In the, in the full- People system. working, right. People working at the top of their license. We, that was very much, so telehealth was part of the governor's healthcare bill. Uh, scope of practice was part of our, was part of um, the governor's healthcare bill. So we think that is significant movement from our colleagues in the legislature. I think on um, out of network, uh, they are, I haven't, again, I have not seen the language, but what I was, was reported to me was that on out of network that um, they will let, uh, I believe the secretary of health and human services to define and to um, define what that is through regulations. Um, those were three that I heard. I, I know there's some things around COVID and payments and the like, which, you know, I will look at. Tell me so about helping like hospitals. The three, those were, oh, community, community hospitals. hospitals who have high Medicaid. With a cap at 35 million, I think. Yeah. So to me, it has many pieces of, um, it, it builds on, you know, what, many pieces that we proposed. I haven't seen other than the telebehavioral health, that there's other things on behavioral health, which is always um, important to me, but I, uh, I, I'm feeling good that they were, they've been able to, they quietly been working together to put out a conference committee and, you know, they started at very different places. So I, I see this as good progress for this session and I look forward to taking a hard look at it and, uh, you know, and advising the governor and what we should do. When you so say that, you mean the house and the Senate started at different places. Sorry, John. So, Madam Secretary, we're just about out of time with you. Um, just have to ask, what are you most looking forward to with the new Biden administration? Um, uh, well, one is the new head of the CDC is our own Massachusetts Rochelle Walensky, who I've gotten to know really well uh, through the governor. She's on the governor's medical advisory board. And um, I had recommended to be on the reopening board. 
So just to have someone who really understands healthcare and policy and practice um, upfront and close, you know, personal, I think is, and she's just an extraordinary person from my perspective uh, at CDC was great. Um, I um, a, a federal administration and a president who is, uh, is empathic, who embraces everyone uh, in our country uh, and uh, builds upon the strength of our democracy uh, and acknowledges the diversity of our people, I think is, uh, and is a uniter, is somebody who will unite. Um, you know, uh, the one thing about Joe Biden is he understands grief. He understands, and I, I don't, but he's, he's taken that grief into a belief of, of your own belief into what government should do for people. Um, I think it's going to be hard because I think there is, there, we're clearly, things are very divisive uh, in our country. But I think for me, uh, uh, he believes in science. Uh, I think we will have um, a federal government that we can trust the policies. And uh, as someone who's been in and out of public service my whole life and consider, and, and I'm a, I am a public servant. That's really important to me. So Secretary Sutters, thank you for the amazing, incredible, and most challenging and difficult work you've been doing. Thank you for joining us today. And um, good luck from both of us and from everybody in the Commonwealth as you continue to help us get through this enormous challenge. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I hope you stay well, practice bubble fidelity, that's my Christmas wish for happy holidays. And all of us are looking forward to 2020 being over. <laughs>